I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, listeners, I have some great news. We got our first sponsor, Bach Trumpets. It's very fitting that they're our first because I've been playing their instruments since I'm 12 years old. Now, I'm thrilled to tell you about the reclamation of the Bach Trumpet brand. Just about a month ago, I had the privilege of playing a few of these new horns, and I have to say, even after a few notes, I knew it was the trumpet for me. Bach has invested in R&D, engineers, product development teams, and artist relations to reclaim the elements of Bach's best horns while improving the design and performance of these instruments. I can confidently say that these are some of the best trumpets I've ever played. The new line of Bach Pro Trumpets will be launching later this year, and I can't wait for you to experience the exceptional sound and craftsmanship for yourself. Visit BachBrass.com for your chance to be the first to learn about these new horns. Or you could come to the Metropolitan Opera in New York City and hear me play mine. Either way, you're going to love what's going on at Bach as much as I do. Oscar nominee and six-time Grammy Award winner Terrence Blanchard is a famed trumpeter and composer for the stage and screen, including 17 collaborations with Spike Lee. His most recent triumph was becoming the first black composer commissioned by the Metropolitan Opera since it opened in 1883, a historic fact he does not take lightly. I'm the first, but I am not the first qualified, that's for sure. I just happen to be the conduit for that experience to happen. It's not about being a one-and-done kind of situation. You know there's qualified people out there who can write and who can do these things. You just need to give them the space to develop their craft. You're listening to Speaking Soundly, a backstage pass to today's biggest stars of the music world. I'm your host, David Krause, principal trumpet of the Metropolitan Opera. During each episode, you'll hear me speak with inspiring performers about their creative process and the personal journey that led them to the stage. About a year ago, we were rehearsing your opera, Fire Shut Up In My Bones, at the Met. 
And there was a buzz in the air. We were about to debut the first opera in the Mets' long history from a Black composer. And then on top of all of that, for me, I walk into the downstairs space and I see you, one of my childhood musical heroes. Um, So it was a real amazing experience for me. What was that experience like for you? It was crazy. It was unreal. It was emotional, too, because, you know, my father loved opera. And he wanted to be a, an opera singer. He was a baritone. And he was singing whenever he got a chance. And to go from that being on the greatest stage in the operatic world was something that still kind of leaves me in disbelief. You know, I mean, it's like, I just felt blessed to be there. Both operas that you composed, mm-hmm. Fire Shut Up in My Bones and Champion, had their debut in St. Louis, yes. but then were retrofitted to the enormous stage of the Met. What kind of musical and physical adjustments were made throughout that process? Well, the cool thing is some of the musical adjustments, they're not required because I had already written for full orchestra. The main thing is, is just like rewriting some of the scenes. And that was fine because something came out of it that was really beautiful. And David, I gotta tell you, it was, it was crazy because some of those scenes were hard for me to hear melodic content. I'm glad it happened that way because a little distance from it, you know, allowed me to come back and say, oh, well, it can probably be this or it could probably be that. But uh, when I first did it initially, man, I was I was drawing blanks, bro, big time. It's, it's really inspiring to hear you talk about that because you'd think that a composer writing operas at the Met is very headstrong, but you're saying that it was really a process and you were learning even throughout the different iterations of the opera itself. Oh, definitely. I mean, probably in my case, one of the things that makes it work for me is that I am a newcomer. I am a newbie. And I'm not stepping into this with a definite approach of what my opera should be because I have so little experience in the world I'm putting my trust in a lot of people who do, you know? Now, having said that, I I still want to try to maintain the vision that I have for the story, obviously. But man, there's so many things that I'm learning about how to write a voice that's appropriate for a character. I think having that freshness, it allows me to bring something different to the table, but at the same time, keep my options open so that I can learn as much as I can. I know you were there opening night because you came up on the stage, took a bow, and the crowd went nuts. But what was the experience of attending a performance like that for you? It must have been pretty surreal. Well, for me, it's a nerve-wracking experience, you know, because you don't know if people are going to like what it is that you've done, you know. But I got to tell you, though, man, watching you guys in rehearsal and watching the singers, I felt, I mean, it's nerve-wracking from the sense of being accepted. Right. But I felt so comfortable in what the performance was going to be because I watched you guys just take ownership of the music. It was out of my hands at a certain point. And with Will and all of the great singers, man, they just took ownership of it. So, you know, while I was nervous about the, about, about the reaction, I was bored at the performance. I mean, literally floored. I'm like, wow. And I don't know if you remember that amazing moment where you guys played the national anthem and we heard the soprano voice 
just like reeling all over the room. And then we looked around and it was Renee Fleming. <laughs> Man, that was is that, is that true? She was sitting on the other side. And oh, wow. Every, every, even people downstairs that were seated downstairs turned around to see who is that voice. And I looked at her, she had on the red dress, man. It was Renee Fleming, man. Wow. A lot of people even talked around and applauded, you know? That, that's impressive. Well, Renee Fleming was not the only amazing soprano in the house that night. You had Angel Blue singing in your cast. How does it feel to have a great artist like that interpret your music, make it their own, and maybe even give it a life bigger than what you had thought possible? Oh, it's, a, it's the greatest feeling for me because being a jazz musician, that's what I was always drawn to in some of the decisions I made of, of music that I wanted to play by other composers, you know. And then the other part of it, too, I think, and this is what I'm learning, you know, because um, um, a lot of the singers use this phrase, the way, it, the way it sits in my voice, you know. And I'm learning more about what that means in terms of how they just feel comfortable with the ranges of everything whether where the melody really blooms, you know, and how that correlates to where it is and where it sits in their voice. Um, and with Angel, it was incredible. A lot of African-American singers who go to opera come from the church and they're told to turn that off, you know, when they start to sing opera, you know, which is, I, I mean, listen, I know you, you didn't have gospel when Puccini wrote La Boheme, so so I get it. But, you know, in a piece like this, I told all of the singers, I want you to bring all of that back. Bring all of that, you know, bring your church background, your blues background, because that's what a tell, that's all part of telling the story. And Angel, she walked over to me and she goes, so will you be okay if I, and I'm like, are you kidding? Are you kidding me? And she sang it in rehearsal, David. There wasn't a dry eye in, and look, I mean, we've been working on the music. I wrote it, I knew it, right? But the way she sang it, man, the assistant dramaturge, he walked over to me in tears and he was trying to speak and he couldn't. And he just ran out of the room. That's how beautiful her, her performance was. So for me, that's the biggest compliment you could ever have as a composer, where somebody takes something and makes it their own in such a way that it becomes an experience. Because, you know, that's what you want when you create music anyway. It's not about the music on the page. It's about what comes about as a result of people performing that stuff. It goes well beyond what's on the page. A lot has been made of the fact that this opera was the first opera commissioned and performed by a Black composer in the Met's history. And while that is groundbreaking, how do you reconcile this achievement knowing that great composers like William Grant Still were considered, quote, not worthy of consideration, unquote, because they were black. You know, when I read that comment, it, it, man, it resonated inside of me so much because the comment spoke to so much that's wrong in the world of art, not just in opera, but in the world of art. And for, for someone to say he doesn't understand what it takes to create real opera, what is real opera? It was, there was just so much in that little box that was written about Wayne Grant Still that just infuriated me about what happens in the world of art. You know, sometimes you have people who really just don't get it, but think that they do. And who knows who, when uh, Grant Still could have inspired had the Met done that production. 
So it's a weird kind of existence for me because the thing that I've been saying all along is like, okay, maybe I'm the first, but I am not the first qualified. That's for sure. You know, and having said that, that was motivation to make fire a success at the Met because I felt like it was much bigger than us as individuals. You know what I mean? I felt like there was something else at play and we had to take it seriously, you know, and do the best that we could. And listen, everybody was on the same page. You know, every, the first day of rehearsal, we didn't even rehearse. We had down, we had a discussion about what it meant to be at the Met doing this production of Fire. It was such an amazing conversation about all of the struggles that people are going through just to be an artist. You know, one of the kids was talking about how he was persecuted at the school just because he wanted to sing. And uh, he found safe haven in being in that rehearsal. And you know how that is, man. You know, once you start to really feel like there is a community for you, then you can really sit down and really focus on your art and thrive and, and work hard and grow. Um, so, you know, I know it was a simple question, but there was so, there was so much going on that was involved with that. There was a woman who was 92 years old who got on a train to come up from Maryland to see that opera in a wheelchair. And I get emotional thinking about her, you know, because it was her first time at the opera. It was a moment in time. I just happened to be the conduit for that experience to happen. But it was a moment where all the stars were aligned, great musicians, great performers, aligned with a very desiring audience. An, an audience that had been clamoring for something they didn't even know they were clamoring for. That's the wild part about it. You know what I mean? They didn't even realize what it was they were clamoring for. But a lot of them said to me, to see their culture on the stage at the Met blew their minds, right? And to me, that's what opera is supposed to be. Opera is supposed to be music of the people. It's supposed to tell stories. So we have great stories that have been told and they're classic stories that deal with tragedy, you know, uplifting moments in our lives. I get it. But at the same time, there's still stories that need to be told from our point of view, not just African-American, but all different types of people and all genders, man. So it's not about being a one and done kind of situation because, you know, there's qualified people out there, man, who can write and who can do these things. You know, we just need to give them much space to develop their craft. I want to talk about your start as a jazz musician. You got your first big break playing with Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers, and you were just 19 years old. Can you explain who Art Blakey was and the significance that his band, the Jazz Messengers, had on you and so many generations of jazz musicians? Well, Art Blakey has become the jazz school because his band has produced so many band leaders from Freddie Hubbard, Lee Mark, and uh, Woody Shaw, Wayne Shorter. The list is endless of the number of people who have played with him. So, you know, to get an opportunity to play in that band when I was 19 was a godsend. And I learned so much. I was in that band for four years, and I tell people, I was there for four years, but I aged about 40 because I felt like I was learning so much, you know, like rather quickly, you know, it's like on-the-job training. And it was a beautiful experience, man. It's something I, I'm so grateful to have had. And you were at Rutgers University studying yes. and left Rutgers to go 
on a 10-week tour with Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers in Europe. How would you compare the education that you got on the road in those 10 weeks to the education that you were getting in school and perhaps if you had stayed in school? Is there even a comparison? No, no, yeah, of course. But here's the thing. If it weren't for school, I wouldn't have been prepared to do that, man. If it weren't for the theory lessons, if it weren't for the composition lessons, if it wasn't for the trumpet lessons that I got from Bill Fielder, I wouldn't have been able to understand that stuff. You know, I'd have been floundering around, you know. And if if, if it wasn't for the great teachers, they talked to me about, listen, it's not just about going out there, doing a gig and going home. You're still a practicing musician, which means that you're still growing. And the difference between that and going to school was immense. But school gave me the building blocks that helped me grow further. And I look at all of my upbringing and saying that the, the schooling is the thing that prepares you. If you go to, if you deal with the right teachers, they prepare you to grow and learn when you get out into the real world. It's not about accomplishing a goal and then becoming static. No, it's about having all the tools to allow you to move further. But at uh -huh. 19 years old, did you feel ultimately prepared for what you were doing? Well, no, no, no. But that's what, that's what I'm saying. That's what I mean by school helping me prepare because school allowed me to evaluate what was going on. You know what I mean? It's, it's like I'm out there and, and there's this whirlwind of being in France, being in all of these different cultures, experiencing the music, their music, experiencing the food, language, the whole nine, you know, just being freaked out by culture itself, thinking that, okay, humanity exists well outside my little bubble of New Orleans, Louisiana. So no, I wasn't prepared for that. But man, that was the best education I could have ever gotten because those pe people were responding to the music. They were responding to an art form, you know? And then you started to really realize how much we are all the same as a, you know, even though we're speaking many different languages and have different cultures, we're still all a human man and want to be loved like anybody else. You've gone on to form many ensembles after that. So mm -hmm. as a band leader, what were the greatest lessons learned from him? The greatest lesson I learned from our Blake is to never lie to your audience. You know, he said, man, just be yourself. Don't speak above your audience. Don't speak beneath them. Speak straight to them. And that happened to me with, you know, when I was writing the opera. I wasn't trying to be too complicated or too forward thinking, right? I was just trying to make sure that it was a natural experience for everybody. Because Art used to tell us all the time, he said, you never want to be too hip because two hips make an ass. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. I've been living my life by that. You grew up in New Orleans, which is the epicenter of jazz. Um, as you're growing up as a trumpet player and a musician there, are you aware of the musical history that came before you, that connection to Louis Armstrong and King Oliver, or is that not a big deal when you're growing up in the middle of it? No, I mean, you become aware of it. I mean, the, the question is when, you know, and for me, I was young when I started to really realize what was going on. And then uh, when I realized that I lived right across the tracks from the boys' home that Louis Armstrong was in, that had another powerful impact on me. But the thing about growing up in New Orleans mostly, David, is that there was always an air of just having serious passion for playing music. 
you know, stardom and career is one of the things that were talked about. And I'm very blessed to have come from that because the other thing you got to remember too is that I would listen to Clifford Brown and Miles Davis in my home, but then I would go out and I would hear these brass bands. So for me, you could hear this line of this growth, you know, and development. And immediately it put me in the mindset of like, this music has to evolve. And as a trumpet player specifically, was it an intimidating place to grow up because there are so many great players that come from there? Man, listen, because we always used to hear the stories, you know? We had we had the stories about Pops. We hear the stories about the Brunius brothers, man. Uh, Emery Thompson was another great trumpet. Wallace Dabby. Uh, all of these jazz trumpet players who were great musicians who a lot of people don't really know. These guys could really play the instrument, you know? And I'll never forget... Uh, okay, let me just tell you this story. Talk about trumpet players. So Dixie Beal ran, had the big band at the Roosevelt Hotel. And uh, Willie Singleton, Emery Thompson, and um, Charlie, I can't think of Charlie's last name. They were the trumpet players in that band. And sometimes I would sit in or fill in for any of those guys. And whenever I filled in for the, they were on me about my reading, intonation, phrasing, the whole nine. I come down, it was also a room that would, would, would allow major stars to play, right? So I come down there with a big band. I'm not, I'm not gonna tell you who, but it was a major band, right? And we would play the show, the other band would play the dance music, Dixie Beals band. When Dixie Beals band got up to play, all the trumpet players were like, damn. But those guys sounded amazing. You know what I mean? And I went, and I felt proud. I was like, yeah. That's, that's what happens <laughs> you know, This is part of the course. Yeah, so I was very, very proud of that night. Yeah, and as you came into your own as a jazz musician and as a trumpet player, how did you get better? Was it all talent and just getting out there and doing it, or was there a lot of practicing to do? That brings up another topic about it's not just practicing, but practicing correctly. You know what I mean? Because I, I would spend a lot of time practicing, but... I probably created more mistakes because I, I had a problem with my armature that I had to correct once I moved to New York. But I didn't really know that while I was in school. I just used to spend a lot of time trying to correct issues. And some of them would, be, would, get, would get corrected just because of me putting in the time. But then others, you know, I didn't know about those issues until later. And listen, bro, you know, Donald Harrison, Wynton Marcellus, Bradford Marcellus, Kent Jordan, there was a whole bunch of us that came along together. And when we were in those summer music camps, you could hear them getting better. So that was also a motivating factor for me. It's like, oh, man, check out so-and-so. Wow. Yeah, bro, I practiced this. I was doing this. I've been working on it. Oh, then you go home and you try to go, oh, man, there's something to that. Um, I was just, I always just wanted to be the best musician I could be. So there was no problem trying to get me to practice. Yeah. When you scored Spike Lee's film, When the Levees Broke, you appeared in the film with your mom and your aunt as they returned to their homes after they were flooded by Hurricane Katrina. I mean, yeah. This must have been an extremely difficult time for you personally. How does writing music for an intensely personal subject differ from writing music for, say, a historic event that you're detached from or somebody else's personal story? Well, the big the big difference is is that with the personal story, 
man, you have to calm yourself down because there, there's such a need to tell the story that you may, you may overplay your hand, you know, because you, you have such a burning desire to get it out that you confuse that energy with the real story. You know what I mean? And, um, I've had to learn how to just say, all right, take a break, bro. Take a break. I know what you're trying to do, but take a break, get away from it, and then come back and come back at it, hopefully with fresh eyes. Mm. Those stories can be difficult because of that. You know, as a matter of fact, when it came time to do the album, uh, man, I kept trying to write new music and it was not going over well. Everything I was coming up with, I just didn't like. And my wife said, why don't you use the themes that you've written for the documentary? And I said, okay, you know what? That makes sense. That's a good starting place. And, and it took my wife to get me to see that I need to step back from it, you know, and allow her to speak to me as opposed to me with that burning desire, trying to control with the narrative. Your film collaborations with Spike Lee over the years has formed such an indelible artistic bond that I can't see an image from Do the Right Thing or Malcolm X or any of his movies without hearing your music in my head. They're just attached at the hip. What is it about his style of storytelling that complements your musicianship? I think I think the, the, the relationship between Spike and myself is based on the fact that he doesn't shy away from the truth. And just that by itself inspires me to write, you know, because I've always considered myself a bit of a social activist, you know. And I always feel the same thing with Spike. When we did Black Klansman, he was so excited about telling that story. And you combine that with his cinematic vision. His storyteller is just phenomenal. So by the time you see the cut of the film, the direction is so forged that you feel like your job is a lot easier. Have you worked with filmmakers that the vision isn't so strong? And does that impede the music making? Yes, it does. It does slow things down. Because there's so many ways to skin a cat, man. That's the thing, you know what I mean? It's like, that's what I always tell my students. It's like, listen, you may hear me do a scene this way at this moment in time, but that's because that's what the director wants. You know, you can still find other things that can really help tell stories. Yeah, it can be uh, daunting, but that's where a level of trust between everybody involved comes in. You know, despite trust that I'm not going to do anything crazy or come up with some randomly new idea on how to score his films, he trusts me in the fact that he knows that I'm going to do my best, try to find the melodic content, and then to find the orchestration to really help tell this story. One of those scenes I have to ask you about, Mo Better Blues came out, I loved the movie, but it was just a musician's film, of which there are not many. There's a particular scene in it where Denzel Washington, who plays a trumpet player, gets in a fight in the back of the alley. And at one point in the fight, the thug picks up his trumpet and bashes his face in with it. And I remember not being able to watch it. Like when the trumpet hit his chops and split his lips open, this was about the worst thing that I've ever seen in my life. What was your reaction when you had to score that scene? Man, when I saw that, I was, I kept going, I hope he doesn't want music here, <laughs> you know? 
because it would be hard. But I have to tell you, though, uh, it is a hard scene for me to watch. It's it's a very hard scene for me to watch. And what was funny, though, a lot of people don't notice. So when it, when he came back to the club and tried to play again, and he, he with the idea is that he can't play. So Spike wanted me to crack notes on purpose. And I was like, okay, but I think that would be kind of hokey. So what I did was, man, with every measure, I pushed the mouthpiece to the side and to the point where it was all the way over here and it just didn't have nothing, right, you know? And the great thing about that scene is that it starts off with promise. Yes, he yes, yes. He starts off being able to play and you're like, he's going to come back. He's going to be able to do this. And then slowly but surely the embouchure starts to collapse. In a way, that scene is more painful to watch than when he gets his lips bashed in. Yeah, well, because he's trying. He's trying so hard. I mean, you know, I think the thing that makes the scene so hard, by the time we get there, we know how dedicated this guy is to his music. He's dedicated to his craft. And now you're taking that away from him. You know what I mean? That, but yeah, that was hard. Wow. Well, thank you for that inside look. Now, <laughs> this afternoon, I got to go watch that clip. You often quote Duke Ellington, who said that there's two kinds of music, good and bad. What delineates good and bad music for you? Well, for me, it's the insincerity. Bad music is all about trying to manipulate an audience for financial gain. You know, that's kind of what bad music is for me. And Good music is music that's honest, that's heartfelt, and it doesn't shy away from the truth. You've been touring with your group that you conceive, the E Collective. Now, first of all, just the name of the group is very telling, a collective as opposed to the E Band. Um, Can you describe how the ensemble came about and what its musical mission is? Well, initially, man, it was really to inspire young kids who... We're not going to come to music through the realm of jazz to inspire them to play music on a high level. But as we did that, at the beginning of the creation of the band, there was a lot of social events that happened. Tamir Rice was shot and killed. Uh, Mike Brown was shot and killed. And we felt like we needed to do something. So we started dedicating the first record and definitely the second record to Black Lives Matter and I can't breathe campaigns. So the, so for me, there's also a social aspect. Yeah. Well, I can't thank you enough for your time. It's been really amazing talking to you, and I'm really looking forward to playing your opera, Champion, which is coming to the stage of the Metropolitan Opera this season. I'm really excited to hear it. Look, man, thank you for saying that. You know, I've, I feel very blessed to have had you guys because... You got sound really good. You got sound really good. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Speaking Soundly. If you like what you heard, please tell your friends about it. Spread the word. Be sure to follow, rate us, and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. To keep up on future episodes, follow us on Instagram at speakingsndly and visit our website, artfulnarrativesmedia.com. Tune in next week as we hear another inspiring artist speaking soundly. 
and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.